Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Jim Rossi. He's a writer and the author of a new book called Clean Tech Con Artists, which began its life as his master's thesis in history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and took a surprising turn. Jim Rossi, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks. So before we begin, I just want to jump in uh, with a quote from the book to give our listeners a sense of what's ahead. You write, quote, the FBI agent gestures to an easel and a couple Sharpies. Please, he says, take it from the top. Over the next 90 minutes, I take the FBI through this most unexpected turn in my master's thesis in history. <laughs> so before we begin, Jim, why don't you just take a few minutes, tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got up to this point. Sure, Ryan. Let's back up to 2013 when this book starts. I had been a writer living in San Francisco. I had been writing about science and history subjects for the LA Times, the Chronicle, Mother Jones, a bunch of others. And just as I was really starting to break in and make my mark and be able to pay my bills as a writer, the recession hit. And, you know, the digitization, kind of the cradling of the news media, all my editors got laid off and I was going to be out in my butt pretty soon. So I decided to go back to graduate school and it worked out that I got into the University of Nevada, Las Vegas history department and I got a graduate assistantship. So basically I could go to graduate school without going into debt during the recession. And I was like, that's a perfect ticket. I'm taking it. And so, you know, 2013, I'm a graduate student working for the vice president of economic development the university and my job was to help put on different events, uh, entrepreneurial events, lectures, tours, those kinds of things. And so I was interacting with a lot of people in the community and UNLV is about a mile and a half from the Vegas Strip. The wolf is always at the door. And so one of these people I got to meet was a clean energy entrepreneur, which is what I, which is what I was studying, the history of solar energy in the Mojave Desert. Okay. Let, so let me stop you there real quick. You're at UNLV. You're working on this scholarly project, your master's thesis. First of all, what is that thesis actually about? What are you writing about at this time? Okay, so since we're dealing with a kind of a history audience here, I get yeah, exactly. I'm getting a master's in U.S. history, reconstruction to the present, and then I also have a major or master's thesis focus and also a graduate certificate, and that is in renewable energy. And my thesis was going to be a history of solar energy in the Mojave Desert. Okay, so what is the solar industry like in the Mojave Desert? Yeah, so at that time, again, this is in the middle of the Great Recession, the, uh, under President Obama, the Recovery Act, the stimulus, something like over $800 billion, including I think it was something like $11 billion just for renewable energy just in and around the Mojave. So at the same time, Las Vegas got hit by the recession worse than virtually any other city in America 
along with Phoenix and others. It, it got hit by the recession worse than it got hit by the Great Depression because during the Great Depression, they had Hoover Dam. So real estate values cratered like 62%. So you've got unemployment rates near 20%. So you've got this juxtaposition of a really depressed and shocked economic climate with a bunch of money coming in from the government. And so it's the Wild West. Okay, so how does this evolve into clean tech con artists? You're meeting these entrepreneurs in this uh, position, right, that are trying to come onto campus? That's right, exactly. So this is 2013. I come to know this clean energy entrepreneur. He called himself Xavier, Xavier Cross. And he said he had a couple startups making solar panels. He also said he had a nonprofit called Revitalize Las Vegas. And he also began representing a nonprofit in Silicon Valley called Clean Tech Open. Now, Clean Tech Open is a pretty big nonprofit. They promise to find, fund, and foster the most promising clean tech startups on the planet. And that includes everything from solar energy to water conservation to recycling to composting. Clean tech kind of writ large. So he wanted to... He wanted to lecture on campus, and he also wanted to work closely with some of UNLV's top entrepreneurs. And we actually have a bunch of those people. We've got an engineering college. We've got a lot of stuff going on with solar energy and water conservation just because of where we are in the desert. We've got engineering students, computer science, MBA. We've got a prime hospitality management program. So my boss, the vice president of the university, his working orders to me were when people want a relationship with the university, make sure they are who they say they are. Now, as I got, used, got to know Xavier, he was real smart, but I was suspicious of him for a number of reasons. And when I started researching his LinkedIn and his social media, I started finding a bunch of red flags, and I soon suspected that he was not who he said he was. Okay, so you're doing these background searches on him as part of UNLV to make sure that he is who he says he is. What's not adding up to you? That's right. Well, there were a number of things early on that was intuition. And one of the things, as I learned on the fly about fraud protection, is intuition is good, but you want to, as soon as you can, replace feelings with facts. So early on, one of the things was he liked to talk, but he did not like to answer direct questions. You know, he would talk about solar energy and being an entrepreneur, and I would was very enthusiastic, I'd ask him very specific questions. And instead of really answering them, he would usually excuse himself to go to the bathroom or something. And he'd come back and be on the other side of the room. This was at different networking events. And that was just something that was unusual. Another thing was I eventually began following up with him about different, different events and happenings and stuff at the university. And his emails kept bouncing back. And I talked to one of my colleagues and he said, oh, Xavier... He changes his email like every month, give or take. And I said, really? And he has no email forwarding? That was, yeah, that was very suspicious because why, why would a legitimate business person not have email forwarding? Like, you know, I, I've had the same phone number, same email addresses for over a decade because I want people to be able to reach me. They need to. So those were a couple things. Another thing that jumped out at me is we toured Hoover Dam. And when we got in the elevator, I was standing right behind him. And I'm taller than him. My nose was maybe two inches from his, his head. And as I'm looking at his temples of his hair, his temples were gray. But again, I'm just a couple inches from his head. The roots were not gray. You, 
Yeah, you can see it was just like a mill, millimeter or something. So I started thinking to myself, you know, what kind of person colors their hair gray? Like there's plenty of people who color their hair not gray. So none of, none of these things were criminal, but they were all very suspicious. So then what I did is I need facts. I got his LinkedIn. I looked at his former employers and going back five, six years, most of the email, most of the websites and stuff were dead links. Couldn't get anything, but I went back five years. He said he worked at Microsoft for a year. I contacted Microsoft. They got back to me within 48 hours. They had never heard of him. The other thing was, he said he studied at Carnegie Mellon University. He didn't say he earned a degree, but he said he studied with a professor, Marcel Just, who's an expert at functional magnetic resonance imaging. So I punched up his website immediately and sent him an email. And what he wrote back really made clear to me that this guy is not who he said he was. He said that I've never heard of Xavier Cross, and furthermore, his description of my work is complete nonsense. So I had to, at that point, I had two red flags. Okay, so not to give too much away, but what do you suspect he's after? What's the alleged scam or con that you're suspicious of? Well, at that point, I told some of my colleagues, I said, I think Xavier's a con artist, and I think he's running a long con, but I can't prove it. So over time, you know, one of, at that point, I go to UNLV Special Collections and I start reading up on fraud because I'm, I'm like, I think this guy is running a con, but I don't know what it is. And so eventually I start reading books by Frank Abagnale, the sociologist David Moore, Kevin Mitnick, all these people. I'm basically trying to understand how it works. And so there's three key elements in a con. There is the grifter, who is the con artist. There is the mark, who is the victim. But the key element is the shill. That is an often unwitting accomplice that the grifter uses to gain the mark's trust. So my hypothesis at this time was that Xavier X was using his relationship with Cleantech Open and potentially his relationship at UNLV to get introduced to unsophisticated investors and entrepreneurs to try to get hands on their money and possibly their intellectual property. So you end up taking this not to the chain of command through the university. You go outside the university right away. You go to the police uh, and eventually to the FBI. Is that right? That's right. I mean, from my standpoint, you know, UNLV has its own police force. I, at this point, we're fast forwarding a little bit, but I eventually find out that Xavier's name is an alias. I find out what his real identity is. I interview a number of his victims and I reported it directly to the police because it was a crime in progress. And then the FBI wound up contacting me. And so, yeah, I wound up going in and briefing them. And they were able to corroborate a great deal of what I had found so far. And that turns out to really just be the kind of the tip of the iceberg and go kind of go down the rabbit hole to try to find out exactly what Xavier is up to, with whom, what he had done in the past, who was helping him, and then what to do about it. What's really prevalent reading the book is just the amount of research and time that you're taking to pursue this. Um, what's motivating you to, to go down that rabbit hole? Why not just sort of turn away from it and say, you know, this is sort of out of my, above my pay grade. This is not my wheelhouse. There were some, several reasons. One is from the time I was a kid, I grew up in New Jersey, right outside Manhattan. I remember as a little kid, Ivan Bosky, Michael Milken, that was some of my earliest kind of formative memories. So I always had interest in white collar crime and I, I'd read books about it. I'd studied it and I always felt like it was a big reason why I got into investigative journalism. I wanted to track down, you know, corporate bad boys and crooks and, and catch them. 
And so when I saw it, I jumped on it. There are two other, yeah, the two other related things that was one is not to give too much away from the book, but like you said, the FBI, you know, the agent says to me at that meeting, he said, do you think we should spend $3 million of taxpayer money to put this guy in club fed for two years when you can take him out yourself? And so basically law enforcement told me, yes, this guy is a con artist. Yes, he's trying to rip off people you care about. No, we're probably not going to bust him. And so it was basically going to be up to me to stop him. And, and then the third thing related to that is I'm a very competitive person. And I've got, I don't ha really have hatred for Mr. X. I mean, at times I was real angry, but it was really more like grudging admiration. Like I'm like, finally a worthy competitor. Like, I, you know, I got into journalism because I wanted to do this stuff. But quite honestly, journalism is a shit show. It was just garbage. So ironically, I'm getting a master's in history and I finally have the opportunity to do what I felt like I was really born to do. And I felt like I became a different person. And I like that person. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in terms of a competitor, he does come after you publicly, right? Both in the university and through other avenues. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also, you know, what your experience was like going through that. I mean, are you worried about your reputation when this is going on, when he's um, flipping the tables, as it were? Yeah, good question. You know, I have a bit of perspective now. As it unfolded, I think most of the time it was about 70% comedy and kind of 30% tragedy. And that has to do with, you know, I interviewed dozens of his victims and that was sad. And that was one of the things that made me resolute. But at the same time, it was enjoyable and funny because it was kind of a man bites dog story. So we were enjoying going after him and turning the tables. But at the same time, some of the things he did made me nervous. Like, for example, he set up a cyberbully website where he cut and pasted a bunch of my emails to different people to make it say things different than what I had said. You know, he threatened UNLV with lawsuits. And as people read in the book, UNLV, you know, some of the people at UNLV did not back me up. And that hurt, actually. And I do feel like the Student Conduct Board at UNLV was trying to kind of exert leverage against me. That, you know, if, if you don't do what we tell you to do, you're going to get a black mark on your record. And it's going to hurt you if you want a job or a PhD or something like that. So, yeah, it was difficult. I was kind of like being a little bit like being in a vice and getting twisted. But, I, you know, I think it goes to the territory. The metaphor is I was kind of drowning a rat in slow motion. You expect them to fight back. Mm. You know, it's funny because this book is not a history, but you can tell you have sort of you're historically minded as you're working on it. And to provide context, you open the second part of the book with almost a, a cultural history of organized crime in Vegas. You have a section you call the Vegas Skim. You're talking about confident artists and con men. And it made me wonder in terms of the history of the American West. Uh, there's a lot of stories about men on the make, cutting corners, confidence artists. Um, what's new, if anything, about the kinds of guys that you're interacting with in the 2000s versus this longer history? That's a great question, Ryan. As I learned in doing this, you know, con artists exploit new technologies, but they use age old tactics going, you know, there's written records of this going back to the Bible. Again, the drifter, the mark, the show, a confidence artist, a con artist, they 
gain the confidence of their mark and then they betray it. That's exactly what they do. The big change has been technology. You know, as I wrote about it's the mob organized crime up until the 1970s, roughly, they worked face to face. They skimmed money. You know, if somebody wasn't going along with it, somebody caused problems, they can get rid of them in the desert and not have records. And so what happened eventually, the feds had new laws like RICO, Racketeer Influence Corruption, Corrupt Organizations Act, uh, Witness Protection Program. They were able to use wiretaps, closed circuit cameras, and that was what took down the mob, bugs, not bullets, because they relied so much on face-to-face communications and personal relationships. But at the same time, there's a saying in history, one generation's solution becomes the next generation's problem. Bugs, not bullets, brought down the mob, but it aided and abetted the next generation of organized crime, people using that same technology to skim money, to steal money, to rip people off and get away with it. So why is Vegas becoming such a hub for cybercrime? Is this just about popular representations of Vegas? There's a lot of money there? Or is there something else going on? I think there's some fundamental reasons. And it's not just Vegas. Like a lot of people argue that Salt Lake City in Utah is kind of the scam capital of America. I mean, it's kind of debatable. And there's reasons for that. It has to do with uh, what they call affinity fraud. You know, people can meet other people through the church and stuff like that, and they can kind of misrepresent things. But with, with Vegas specifically, one, we have a very transient moving population. We have a, the Vegas Valley is almost 2 million people now, and we get about 50 million visitors per year coming in from all around the world. So you've got that. It's a great, to me, it's intellectually fascinating, more so than the Bay Area, because you've got all these different creative and, uh, economically interesting ideas and people coming through, but also you have lots of billions and billions of dollars in money, in cash, and it gets, it's very easy to transfer it to untraceable forms. Like you could hide millions of dollars in poker chips and you could put it in a vault that you, the only way people can get in the vault is with an iris scan, you know, so you don't even have to leave a signature. So there, I'm sure there are people who do that. And so, and so also, too, you can stay in hotels for months or years at a time under someone else's name, which is very handy if you have millions of dollars in civil judgments and private investigators after you from all around the world, which turns out was the case with Xavier and his pals. One other thing, Ryan, is there's a, what they call the corporate veil. The, uh, Nevada is a very pro-business state. Another way to put that is it's very easy to incorporate. There's not a whole lot of paperwork. A lot of it's pretty lax. And so it's great if you have a real business, but it's also great if you have a phony business that you want to make look like a legitimate business. Yeah, you see that a lot in the book. There's a, there's a lot of these shell companies. So I want to go back to this question of white-collar crime. One of the things that you point out is that these scams work, by and large, because they uh, fly below the radar of the federal government. but above the capacities of local police forces. Um, what should our listeners know about these kinds of scams, especially if they're interested in protecting themselves uh, from white-collar crime? What did you find out when you're doing this kind of research? Well, I think one of, if not the key lesson to come out of the book is that you can't count on the police to protect you from fraud. And that's not a negative statement against the police. It's just a reality. 
there's too much fraud for the police to bust. Here, a couple examples from the book. Las Vegas Metro Police. Again, this is a police force, the lead police force in a valley of almost 2 million people. They had eight officers on the fraud detail. And one of the things was they apparently track uh, suspects or people in their database by social security number. As it turned out, Xavier, again, that's his alias, he had erased his social security number and he was working with hackers who had multiple social security numbers. So in other words, they couldn't even keep track of him. They didn't know he was operating here. So then you go to the top of the food chain, the FBI. The FBI has a large field office in Vegas. But the thing is, fraud is the FBI's, I think, seventh highest crime priority, you know, preventing terrorism, mass shootings, kidnappings, huge amounts of narcotics, sex trafficking, those kinds of things. That's where their priority is. And they are a relatively small police force in terms of compared to the population. So they have to pick their spots. And it's my understanding that they usually don't go after fraudsters unless they're stealing over $100,000 per incident. And one of the things with Xavier was it seemed that he was very clever at getting people to give him $50,000 at a time. You know, so one lesson is that these huge frauds that you hear about, Bernie Madoff, Alan Stanford, Enron, Wolf of Wall Street, those are not the smart fraudsters. Those are the dumb ones. They just got too big and the feds had to get them. The smart ones are the ones like Xavier, Mr. X, that are operating under the radar for years, sometimes decades, and making off with millions of dollars in cumulative earnings. And that's one of the reasons why I went after him so hard is because I felt this was a really textbook case study in fraud and fraud protection. This is what you see this. This is what you know what to look for. You can protect yourself, your family, your business. You know, the financial crisis plays a major role in this book. Um, And you talk about how it sort of helps perpetuate a lot of scams uh, both the one that you're in particular focused on in this book, but also more broadly. Uh, can you talk more about that, the role of the financial crisis in all of this, especially coming out of Vegas? Definitely. Well, Xavier, once I found out who he was, the biggest scam that I uncovered in his past out of about a dozen was a video game company called Maxim that was based in Colorado around 2006 to 2008. And they were operating out of the same office space as a mortgage lender. This was during the height of the subprime boom. And so it took a long time to figure this out, interviewing over a dozen of the former employees and investors. But I think the entire video game company was a front. It was a, what they call a big store front scam. It was made to look like a video game company, but it was really just a scam. They had coders working. They developed a trailer that they spent over $50,000 on to show to investors. They had all these documents. Xavier turned out he was a master of Photoshop and a forger, and he had worked flipping real estate in Miami. So as the market was going up, they could kind of maintain this fiction. And then when the subprime mortgage went belly up in the fall of 2007, they couldn't keep paying their bills. The money started disappearing and the FBI came in. So there's a saying there's a saying that a rising tide lifts all boats, which is highly debatable, but there's no there's no doubt that a receding tide exposes fraud. And so that's what happened when the economy turns belly up, all these kind of fly by night schemes, some of which are outright fraud, some might just be speculation. Like for example, day trading is not necessarily 
a scam per se, but it's just it's basically just speculation. When the market turns, these quick buck artists tend to get revealed. Yeah, and that's happening a lot in this book. And I want to go back because the whole time you were working on this, you're a graduate student and you've gone back and forth professionally between the academy and journalism. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the investigative skill sets that you're using for this work. It's it's the kind of research skills that maybe not aren't that familiar to scholars. Um, what kind of methodologies are you reliant on? What is helping you to do this research? That's a good question. So I relied on a number of things. One is there's a saying that I really believe in. I'm a practical man, but there is nothing more practical than a good theory. And so I like kind of the juxtaposition and the tension of theory and practice. I'm going out there, I'm talking to people, I'm getting information, I'm testing, but at the same time, I'm going into UNLV Library Special Collections and I'm reading books by and about con artists, Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can and all. You know, and that accelerated my learning curve exponentially. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. It's kind of like if people are familiar with football, you know, you see a bunch of people lining up at the line of scrimmage and they're running back and forth and they're moving, they're shifting formations, and then they hand the ball off to the running back. You know, there's a bunch of misdirection. But if you once you understand the playbook, it will tip you off as to what play was coming. So Xavier was very mysterious until I started reading some of the theory. Like the practice of it, what he was doing, the evidence I was collecting was very mysterious. But then the theory from the books allowed me to decipher it rather quickly. Another lesson too is uh, crowdsourcing. There were certain things that I saw that I didn't understand that I just took because this was the unique thing. I was on campus. I'm surrounded by these really diverse, smart people with all the different skill sets. You know, just a quick example was early on, Xavier Cross. I'm like, that sounds like an alias. We're trying to figure out who he was, but I didn't have any digital identifiers. So I bring it up with another grad student in history who also teaches now, Todd. And he starts flipping through his phone. And I was like, Todd, don't you find this interesting? Everybody's finding this interesting. And he said, no, don't, you don't understand. And he holds up his phone. He said, did you ever see Scrooged with Bill Murray? I said, no. He said, take a look. Bill Murray plays a psychopathic media mogul, and it's kind of a play on the Christmas Carol, but his, his full name when he's revealed at the, I think, at St. Peter or something like that, at the gates of heaven, his full name is Francis Xavier Cross. So at that point, I f almost fell out of my chair. I said, it hit me all at once, Xavier Cross. He used to be liked being called X, X Cross, X Cross, 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 Double Cross. His name is Double Cross. It's obviously an alias. And what turns out, then when I take that and I go back into UNLV Library Special Collections, con artists don't think they can scam everyone. They are looking for the people they can scam. And so what they do is they use screens, they use filters. Like if you get a classic email phishing scam, you get like the Nigeria scam. I just saw one today from Amazon where it's like, oh, your account has been suspended. If you look carefully, there will usually be lots of spelling errors. And you're like, why are, why are they doing that? Well, the people who don't notice the spelling errors are people who are more likely to fall from the scam. Just like the people who don't see anything suspicious in somebody named Double Cross are more likely to fork over their money. Uh -huh. So theory and practice. You know, when you're connecting with his previous victims, 
Uh, were they aware at all of what had happened to them? Were they oh, suspicious of him the way he had been? Um, what was the reception also to you as somebody who was kind of poking around uh, to find out more? You know, Xavier is very good at compartmentalizing and hiding evidence. Now, that's one reason why he had avoided jail time for these years before I met him when a number of his colleagues were not so lucky. So most of them knew something was up, but they didn't know the whole story because I want, he had compartmentalized. Like they knew that the video game company Maxim was some kind of scam, but they didn't know who the main investors were. They didn't know who one, that one of the main investors had in fact gotten prosecuted and sent to prison, you know? And then when I talked to the, some of the other investors who did know that people who had testified for the prosecution in the trial, they didn't know about some of the other details. They didn't know that Xavier was operating in Vegas under a new identity, those kinds of things. So, you know, people, some people were eager to talk, some were less eager. I think there's an aspect, most good con artists kind of hide the extent of the scam. They also try to draw the mark into some kind of moral or legal gray area. It makes them somewhat complicit to try to buy their silence. Like, hey, you know, this investment is not, you're not really supposed to do this, but nobody ever gets caught. We're going to make a ton of money, that kind of thing. And that can buy off their silence later. That was not necessarily the case in all, with all these people, but it was in the case in some of them. And he was very clever at doing that. So people, they didn't have concrete evidence to go after. They didn't have a smoking gun. And they also had an incentive to just kind of let it go and move on with their lives. It's kind of like a shameful thing. Just uh, there's a feeling like that with fraud. You know, I'm just wondering, what do you hope is going to come out of this book? You spent a lot of time focused on, you know, getting this on the page. What to you is the best possible outcome? What do you hope to see as a result of this project? Well, you know, I've got three goals and they all overlap quite a bit. One, I want to produce a great piece of art. You know, I want to write a great book. I kind of, in some ways, I kind of see this book as a little bit of a counterpoint to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because he was kind of, a, he was afraid of Vegas and he was afraid to get close to people. So he feared and loathed it. And I, I got to know people here. And the book is also a story about how I fell in love with Vegas. So I wanted to succeed as a piece of art. I want the book to succeed as a, business enterprise I wanted to sell. And related to that is I wanted the book to be a valuable fraud protection tool to people. You know, fraud is a trillion dollar per year problem, creates millions of victims. It's not a victimless crime. It ruins people's lives. I very badly want to take a bite out of that. And so that's the overarching goal. And I hope that it's a, a successful work of art and a successful book in that context. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said about fear and loathing, that is something I was wondering when I was reading this was your inspirations. You have a very distinctive narrative voice, but I think it also fits within a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of genre. I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Well, it's it's insp part inspiration, but it's mostly dedication. And you know, I've developed my voice. I've been done written hundreds of paid articles for a number of editors since I was a kid, and I've had a few great editors that really encouraged me to write in the first person. You know, I had an editor at the LA Times Book Review, and he said that, you know, whenever you write a story, you're always the most interesting person in the story. So write in the first person. So I said, okay. You know, and so I developed that over time. And I was, so I was always interested in history. I'm always interested in juxtaposing different points of view. Like I like, 
socialism versus capitalism, left versus right, up versus down, new versus old. I like I like that interplay of ideas. I'm not like beholden to any particular theory. I'm a fan of many, but I'm not like I don't I don't really consider myself anything that ends in an ism. Journalist, socialist, capitalist. You know, I'm a business person. I'm a I'm an author. And so the other thing was that you know the book started out as a history, and so I weaved. It became a true crime caper wrapped in a history. So I had the story, and it's a history is wrapped around it. And so I had had actually had charts and narrative diagrams and stuff like that that I used to write the scene and narrative. And also because it was happening, I knew it was a book as it was happening. I was able to write conversations and stuff down and save emails and file legal requests and stuff like that. So I was able to write it in scene. And so it reads like a novel. It was a unique opportunity. You know, and so my some probably my biggest single influence is Tom Wolfe. You know, yeah, he pioneered that new journalism where it's nonfiction that writes like if it's good enough, like the electric Kool Aid acid test, the right stuff. You forget that it's nonfiction. That's what I, that's what I was aspiring to, and I've heard from a number of people. To them, at least, I succeeded, so I'm really happy about that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. I, I noticed that uh, new journalistic um, style to the to the book. Um, it's novelistic, but it's nonfiction. Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you before we let you go, um, what are you working on next? I know this book just came out, uh, but do you have anything else on the back burner right now? Well, I'm interviewing for teaching jobs right now. I'm interviewing at the University of Nevada to teach a fraud protection class based on the book. So I'm excited about that. You know, I'm looking into other things related to this because, again, fraud protection, that's kind of my mission. It's become my mission now, and I'm looking to translate that. At the same time, probably my second book might be an anthology because I've published a number of articles on LinkedIn. I have a huge following on LinkedIn. I have over 400,000 followers, which has been great. And so probably my next book will probably be an anthology of those previously published articles along with some new essays. Okay, excellent. You know, I, I did want to ask you before we go, I know this is a caper. It hooks the reader. I don't want to give too much of the plot away. Uh, but I do just want to ask you, did you feel like there was a resolution for you at the end of this story? Uh, did you get a sense of closure? How about I put it that way? The story go. you know, the story starts in 2013. It goes right up until June of 2019. And I do feel like there's resolution. However, I do feel, and I think you did a very uh, artful job of getting to it. I think that the last chapter is still to be written, and it will be written by the readers of the book, and it will be written in real time. All right. Well, Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. So, Jim Rossi, your new book, Clean Tech Connors, is available now, uh, and you take care, okay? Take care. Have a great day, and happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays.